Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. And India, if it was to, by some show of strength, decides to withdraw from this treaty, it will lose a lot of standing in the international community. It's not just about water anymore. It's, it's about politics. It's about our foreign policy and then everything else that comes along with that. Welcome to the Stratfor Podcast. I'm Faisal Pervez. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss the geopolitics of water using one specific case, that of India and, to an extent, Pakistan. It's no secret that a major city in South India recently experienced a drought of such significance that it was even visible from space. Meanwhile, in northeastern India, floods are wreaking havoc on local communities, displacing millions Cycles of drought and flood are as old as India itself. But as the monsoons arrive later and floods become more severe, the impacts become greater. To discuss these topics, we recently spoke with Ambika Vishwanath, founder of the Kubernetes Initiative and a geopolitical consultant and water security expert based in Mumbai, India. So Ambika, thank you so much again for joining me for today's conversation. I really appreciate it. Hi, Faisal. Good to be here again. Given today's topic of water security, it's not only small talk for me to begin by asking you this question, how's the weather? It's wet and raining, but good <laughs> because it brings the temperature in Mumbai down like a degree, which is very welcome. That got me thinking about something. It got me thinking about a lot of things, actually. The monsoon is one, but it got me thinking about this other concept about droughts and floods. They're opposites. One right. marks the absence of rain, the other its overabundance. And right. In India, we've seen both happen in recent months. And as you and I were discussing, for example, in Chennai, in South India's Tamil Nadu, we saw the effects of drought in that city. And then just as we speak, floods have wreaked havoc in northeastern India, killing over 100 people and displacing millions. Uh, so that brings yeah. me to an obvious question. What do you think explains the fact that a country like India experiences both droughts and floods? And could you comment a bit on each of these uh, situations? I mean, if you think about the size of India and the fact that we have very varied climate zones, uh, it's not unusual that we have both floods and droughts occurring in the country. Um, and it, I mean, it uh, it happens in, in many countries around the world, including in America. But uh, what is unusual is that we sometimes have floods in one area while experiencing a drought-like situation in another part of the country at the same time. And uh, so that's kind of a unique uh, phenomenon that happens in, in India, some, um, not, not every year, but in, in some years. Um, see, the monsoon in India is a very big and important phenomenon. You have right. festivals that are around the monsoon. Um, June, the first week of June is when the monsoon hits 
the southwest of India. So it comes to Kerala first and, and everybody knows Kerala. And it's a very awaited event. Um, and and the thing is, in India, the monsoon accounts for 70% of our annual water. So that's a lot of our water that comes in these three months right. um, of the entire year. So traditionally, um, as an agrarian society, we are very dependent on the monsoon because we grow some of our biggest and largest number of crops during this period. Um, but increasingly so because of development, industrialization, um, urban spaces increasing in, in a very haphazard fashion, um, we're not uh, being, you know, creating well-planned cities and all of that. You then have all of these natural phenomena like your floods being completely exacerbated by your man-made encroachments and deficiencies which is i think the nicest way i can put it <laughs> i'm really i'm really glad you raised that point uh because floods and droughts like you said they're natural they happen it's uh, the course of nature but the idea is that different countries have created different sorts of solutions to deal with these sorts of problems and when i think about the floods I mean, it seems like that whatever solutions are there in India so far, they're still deficient. Uh, yeah. Can you maybe give an example of one reason why these floods so, happen? Because it's a regular thing. It seems to happen every year where a lot of yes. people die and millions are displaced. Yes. So see, the Brahmaputra, which comes from China and then flows through India and through Bangladesh out into the Bay of Bengal, it floods every year. This is not new. The problem is when so you take a state like Assam in India, which is right now flooded and it's as people are displaced, like you said, um, over 100 people in Assam alone have died. It's when you don't allow nature to sort of take its course. Subconsciously, everybody knows this and everybody realizes this. Marshlands, for example, are natural flood catchment areas. And along the Brahmaputra, there are large tracts of marshlands, there are large tracts of plains, um, you know, flat, flat areas, and then there are forested areas. Now, when you encroach on these marshlands to, for development to create, you know, small cities, villages, the water that naturally floods out of the river has nowhere to go. So then you have the question of the floods are causing havoc in human settlements. Right. Because in some of these areas, the human settlements should not have been there in the first place. So that's a very real example of the activities of humans having a, I guess, a natural uh, sort of a consequence and creating the floods. You mentioned rivers, and it got me thinking yep. about the role of rivers. And of course, if anyone is looking at South Asia, one of the main rivers is the Indus. Right. And that river, like a lot of rivers around the world, crosses international boundaries. And interestingly, that river, of course, goes between India and Pakistan, as, as well as China. You recently wrote a piece on our site that was discussing some recent developments around uh, the river. You think of the Indus Basin, and you think of the water sharing that is happening uh, between both countries. And there's a treaty that I have in mind. And this treaty has demonstrated remarkable resilience. It has survived the most extreme episodes of hostility. 
And it is a treaty in which 2016 Modi alluded to it by saying that blood and water can't flow together. Of course, yeah. I'm talking about the Indus Water Treaty. Can you right. tell us a little bit more about the background of that treaty and then maybe a little bit about some of the, the recent developments earlier this year in terms of India threatening to use more of the water it is allotted under that treaty? To give a quick uh, snapshot of the treaty, it was signed in 1960, uh, where the World Bank facilitated uh, the treaty between India and Pakistan. And the Indus Water Basin is six rivers. Um, and in in some sense, the treaty was a divorce settlement. <laughs> Pakistan got three rivers. India got three rivers. Right. They were somewhat happy. We were somewhat happy. And in that at that time, it was probably the best the negotiators and the World Bank could put together and to make you know it, it feasible for both the countries and the basin itself. Now, it is 2019 and we have had several wars with Pakistan, as you said. Um, we've had altercations across the border. And the treaty has withstood all of these tensions, um, which is remarkable. I mean, I think back then, if anybody were to tell the, the the creators of the treaty that, you know, there'd be all these wars, I don't think anyone would have realized that we could have kept the treaty aside and still had, had you know, fights over other, other issues. So in that sense, like you said, the treaty is extremely resilient. But every time there is an altercation or, or tension with, um, with our neighbor, the treaty comes into question, right? Like the prime minister makes statements or... Um, Previous water resource minister, he made a, a very strong statement last year. And so these things happen. It sort of creates a little more tension. It, it raises all the, the public sentiment and things like that. And the fact that, you know, India on its side always says that, oh, we will um, use up all the water that is allocated to us within the treaty. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense in some ways because we've already used 95% of the water that's allocated to us, almost 95, which leaves us a little over 5% of the water. Now, that might seem like very little, but 5% of water is 2.5 billion cubic meters of water, which is a lot of water. Right. To give it some context in, a, in an American sense, um, the Colorado River the output of the Colorado River is 20 billion cubic meters. And that is the entire river, which is one of America's largest rivers. And 5% of the Indus that's allocated to India, not the entire river basin, is 2.5 billion. So it's a lot of water. If we were to go ahead and use all of that water, it would mean hundreds of thousands of billions of dollars to create dams, to create diversion, to create, you know, these pipelines and all and it's a very long process it's not like by by next year we can you know use up all of this water it's impossible if you would like to know how such geopolitics may affect your operations stratfor enterprise and stratfor threat lens can help you identify anticipate and mitigate risks that emerging threats pose to your people and interests Stratfor pinpoints evolving global events so leaders can forecast and implement protective measures with confidence. If you're not already a Stratfor member, you can learn more at stratfor.com slash enterprise. Now back to the conversation. You raised the point that every time India and Pakistan go through a period of tension, 
shouldn't say every time, but you know, a lot of times the, the lot treaty of times, yes. comes up. And it makes me think about the role that geography plays here because in the case of Pakistan, it is the lower riparian state. Right. India is the upper riparian state, and there's always been a concern in Pakistan since the independence of both countries in August of 1947 over the fact that India has tremendous leverage over Pakistan by being the upper riparian state. Given the resilience of this treaty, and given the fact that India and Pakistan, of course, the rivalry is structural, it is enduring, and there are very likely to be more periods of tension in the years ahead, do you see that there are still enough reasons as to why the treaty will endure? Yes, because, you know, at the very basis of the treaty is that you can't, and, and this goes for many treaties um, that we have with other countries um, and that countries have around the world, is you can't just break it so easily. Um, and India, as whether it wants to admit this or not, does enjoy a certain standing in the international community that it doesn't want to lose. And if it was to, by some force or by some, you know, show of strength decides to withdraw from this treaty, it will lose a lot of standing in the international community, which is not going to be helpful for us. We're not going to break it. Pakistan is not going to break it. Um, there's also then the question of China comes into play, uh, because what are they going to say? Because of their relationship with Pakistan. And so it, it's not just about water anymore. It's, it's about politics. It's about our foreign policy um, and then everything else that comes along with that. Yeah, that's a fascinating example of how a treaty that covers a natural resource has these diplomatic reverberations and constraints. We've talked about droughts and floods and geopolitical tensions involving water sharing if we turn to the future, setting the political context for a moment, in India, in May, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Bharati Janta Party, or the BJP, secured a landslide re-election. Just like any government that's early in their term, there are a host of problems sitting on your desk. One of those problems, of course, covers the water issues we've talked about. Are there particular areas in India, in which you can see that the Modi government could achieve some success. At the same time, maybe we can take a quick report card and you could mention what are some of the areas where the government actually has achieved success, as well as areas where there clearly uh, is lackluster progress. Well, um, when they came back into power in May, um, I think the one advantage that they have is that it's a continuation of uh, the the government in many ways. So, so that's a, that's a positive thing. the The prime minister has promised now um, piped water to every household in uh, in the country. It's uh, it's his new slogan, uh, the Nal Se Jal, which is um, water from the tap, basically to eradicate. Um, women going and spending hours to to get water from you know community areas um and things like that so it's a good tagline he's very good with that uh but the positive move he's made in that direction is to set up a new ministry the jal shakti ministry which translates to um water power ministry not power as in electricity but power as in 
as in strength. And the fact that he's brought a number of different departments and under one ministry, which is something that we've not had before. Bringing together these departments then ensures that you have a certain amount of coordination, which is a huge first step into then solving your water crisis. The the new ministry is planning a mapping exercise. Um, they are talking about, uh, you know, coordination with the, between the center and the states. All of these are very, very good steps they, that they didn't do when they were previously in, in power. So huge thumbs up for that. Uh, I think 100 uh, percent marks on that. Uh, they've started discussion with um, the relevant states across uh, the country on different ways in which we could harness the present monsoon itself, you know, since the right. um, the elections happened just before the monsoon. And, and there has this monsoon is very, it's been a, a, a weak monsoon, so to speak. And, and so how can we harness this monsoon to the best of our abilities? I mean, they're talking about citizen friendly uh, measures, you know, just like rainwater harvesting, what every single person can do. And, and when you have 1.3 billion people, Doing a little bit of rainwater harvesting, that's actually quite big if, if everybody does um, listen to some of their measures. But they're all small steps, right? And, and not to say that these small steps are not good, but because we are in the situation that we are in now, these small steps have to be done in parallel with some of the bigger steps. Right. And I think that's where um, either the government hasn't thought about some of the big stuff that they could be doing or they're still sort of um, trying to get their act together a little bit. I'm not sure that's a little bit hard to tell, but it doesn't seem like they're thinking long term. You know, they're thinking short term. How do we solve the crisis right now? And that's not helpful when it comes to water, because water is not thinking short term. It's it's just <laughs> right. it's there all the time. All right. It's continuing. Well, this is clearly a dynamic topic and all of this, of course, is taking place in the context of India, which is home to a rapidly expanding economy, an enormous population of 1.3 billion people, and under a renewed administration of Prime Minister Narendra Modi. So I do encourage our listeners to check out Hambika's recent piece on our site on water sharing, and she'll certainly be writing more pieces on the water topic. And uh, so, Ambika, again, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Faisal. I'm always happy to talk about um, uh, the water and especially some of the good stuff because that we don't always hear about some of the good stuff that people are doing. Um, it's always so dire. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this conversation with Ambika Vishwanath, founder of the Kubernetes Initiative and water security expert based in Mumbai, India. We'll have more reading suggestions from worldview.stratfor.com in our show notes. If you would like to know more about how Stratfor can help you with analytical tools to visualize and anticipate areas in the world where your interests and operations are at greatest risk, be sure to visit stratfor.com enterprise. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this podcast, so please leave a review on the Stratfor podcast page on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. For more geopolitical intelligence and links to our content, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. I'm Faisal Pervez. Thanks for listening. Thank you.